Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show, episode 301. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler reviews of Marvel Studios' What If? Season 2, episodes 1 through 5. Before we begin our spoiler reviews, want to let you know once again about Fan Show Plus, the podcast that is exclusive for premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Gerber or on Apple Podcasts via Apple Podcasts subscriptions right here in the same feed where you see MCU Fan Show on Apple Podcasts. And lately on that show, which covers all sorts of MCU news and topics, I've been delivering my first impressions of all these What If Season 2 episodes. So if you want episode-by-episode, individual episode-by-episode breakdowns of What If, you can find it on Fan Show Plus and all sorts of other MCU topics as well. So make sure you check out Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. Also, please make sure you're following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Threads, and X, formerly Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. So thank you so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And thank you in advance to everyone who is about to take the time to share their review. And now, on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? I am doing very, very well. I hope everyone had a Merry Christmas if you celebrate uh, the holiday. And uh, I did. My my uh, Christmas was not uh, Marvel Marvel less. Uh, I would say it was actually Marvel less. Uh, it was. Uh, I got to Loki and WandaVision uh, seasons one and or one. Yeah, obviously. In uh, 4K for uh, Christmas this year, I was very, very happy about that. That was a. Very exciting. So now I can't. I haven't watched them yet. It's gonna probably be a while before I rewatch them, especially after Loki. I just rewatched Loki, but I definitely want to get WandaVision in because that's one of my favorite Marvel things maybe ever. And I need. I'm hopefully to reorganize the room, uh, the media room, because to be, be as short as I can about it. I gotta move a bunch of crap. They built this weird like uh, shelving thing in here. I want to put my TV where that shelving is, and I want to put a place where I can put all the Marvel 4Ks, um, you know, out there. In, in chronological order, that means first Avenger first, y'all. You heard me. Uh, and you know, anyway, but put that out somewhere to, dis- to display because uh, it's just fun. You know, it's fun to put that stuff out there. And so it's nice to have the these these TV shows to put in the co- you know in the mix with everything. And I look forward to knock on wood. Hopefully, uh, Marvel continue continue to put those 4K releases out because uh, I love to have them and to show them out there because I have a little. Marvel uh, MCU little showca- showcase of like little nicky knack things with my, you know, Miss Minutes, my, t- you know, little shield briefcase for, you know, box set and uh, Ant-Man helmet, etc. You know, so I would like to put the movies over there, too. So anyway, we'll, we'll see. But yeah, great Christmas. Hope everyone else uh, had a great Christmas as well. Yeah, I will echo that. Happy holidays to everyone. Not quite happy new year. Might be by the time you're listening to this, if you waited a couple days, but uh, otherwise, uh, we'll catch up. We'll catch up everybody with the New Year's wishes on our next episode. But we there, we definitely have a lot to cover. Even though it seemed like Paul thought we had all sorts of time today because he's telling you so much about his shelving rearrangements and furniture rearrangements in the media room. But you <laughs> know, what? like Darcy, I respect the holiday wordplay or the Marvel wordplay with Marvelous and, and everything. Um, I'm a tough Marvel fan to shop for because if I want it and it's Marvel, I get it right away because I am. Very fearful that if I don't get it, something's going to be sold out and I'm going to have to pay double in, on the secondary market. But 
my obsessions aside, uh, we have, uh, as I said, a lot to cover. We are going to do five, the first five episodes of What If Season 2. We're going to cover all of that in this podcast, and then we will follow up with the final four episodes of What If Season 2 on our next episode. And as I mentioned before you heard the music, if you want episode by episode, individual episode by episode breakdown podcast, that's available via Fanshow Plus. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts via Apple Podcasts subscription. So Paul, let's go ahead and jump right into it with the first episode of season two. What if Nebula joined the Nova Corps Written by Matthew Chauncey and directed by Stephen Frank or Stefan Frank or some combination thereof. I apologize if I didn't get the name pronunciation somewhere in there. But this first episode of season two, Paul, I was a big fan of. I mean, the, the setup for this episode is essentially Neb- is that Ronan betrayed Thanos, similar to the events of Guardians of the Galaxy, except Ronan was much more successful in betraying Thanos in this one, much more lethal in betraying Thanos, and so Nebula was lost in space, stranded in space, left for dead, found by Nova Prime, who who recruited her to join the Nova Corps on Xandar, and then Ronan showed up at Nebula's new home, ready to destroy Xandar, so Xandar makes the decision, made by, of course, Nova Prime, to shield the planet from Ronan's invasion, but that also means nothing comes in and nothing gets out. Xandar is isolated, from the rest of the galaxy, the rest of the universe, and things don't go so well, or they're not going very well, five years into this self-imposed isolation for Xandar. And how bad is it? Well, we open up with, we open this episode with Nebula finding the dead body of our dearly departed Yondu uh, in this scenario. And Paul... Overall, I like this episode a lot. I was a big fan of it. I don't think it quite reached the levels. It was just, it was a nice opener for this season mm, two mm. because I it wasn't certainly things got even better right the the season got even better as it went on <laughs> from this episode what I love most about this is I, I absolutely love the concept of this episode I love Nebula in this this is a great spot for her and I love that it's it's very unapologetically Blade Runner but there's also a lot of detective noir there's some a lot of some, Blade Runner <laughs> yeah there's some but there's also like some Chinatown in this like there's a lot totally. of crazy little influences that factored into it and I, I really loved it from that perspective I do think it kind of loses its way from a plotting perspective as mm. it goes on and where it was maybe trying to do too much within the span of a half hour episode which I won't really say that very often for what if season two overall they've done an incredible job with how much they've been able to yep. cram into these episodes without it feeling or looking like they crammed stuff into it it all fits in very well and very naturally so for me paul this one was it was a solid entertaining opening round for the season that was just mm-hmm. really more of a, a taste of what was to come yeah so i'm gonna say right now about a majority of these episodes that I've only seen the first five and kind of echoing what you say that way I get it out now. So I don't have to repeat it for the other episodes. A majority of these episodes I've been, like you said, impressed with how much characterization and development and uh, creativeness they've put into what less than 20, 30 minutes. Cause it's only, you know, minus the credits and everything. It's like 22, 23 minutes, give or take uh, very impressed because there's, 
you know, these come from a world of comic books and those are all condensed storytelling and it feels and moves so quickly. I love it. And this episode is, no, is I think a great kind of primer for a reminder of that. And it kind of, you know, these seasons, it kind of reminds me of maybe what Mando does a little bit of this, Sean, but I almost feel like they need to treat these seasons almost like a music album where mm. it's like, you don't, you don't want to treat it like you don't want to put an intro. I, I love you. You did a great point of saying how this is not like the best episode. This is yeah. like a good primer episode to kind of get you back into the field, what they're kind of going to set you up for. It's not bad by any means. And I'll get that in just a quick second, but I just want to say, I feel like it's, I like the idea of, Let's go back to a music album kind of idea for these seasons going forward because it kind of feels yeah, like it's a good first song, here. but not a good first single. Exactly. And to me, intros are sometimes my favorite songs on the album, but it's not at first. It's after listening to it over and over again. I'm like, man, that intro is a banger, you know, et cetera. But anyway, um, this to me is kind of like that. And I, a couple quick points here because we have a lot to go through. I want to say that. I really appreciated revisiting the Nova Corps because when the hell have we seen them again? I mean, it's it was kind of interesting because yeah, the I Nova almost, Corps has just kind of been left out there like Nebula, sta- stranded in space. So it was kind it, of nice for the the Nova Corps to do the saving there because actually both of them, in their own figurative ways, in the MCU have been stranded. Although Nebula has yeah. been handled very well in the MCU, one of the oh, great yeah, yeah. MCU success stories overall. Oh, for sure. MCU has enhanced the character overall and has made her relevant in the comics now, you know, and it's it's much better version than it was originally. So the Nova Corps, I love the Nova Corps. I've always and not I like the MCU version, but I'm a big fan of the Nova Corps from the comic books. And I miss I Richard Ryder's my boy and I grew up with reading, you know, New Warriors. So I'm, I want the Nova Corps to have a bigger presence. I I. It's interesting. I I will say I almost think because this obviously has to be vetted through, you know, Kevin and everyone there's I will say if you want to know more how the MCU is going to handle it going forward, even though I know they're kind of extinct now, quote unquote, I will say it's interesting to see how they can they look at this Nova Corps a little bit deeper through this episode. So if you want to know more about what how they are being treated or acting like, you know, in a different kind of setting. It, this is it. Which I thought was interesting, to be honest. I, I appreciated that aspect of it. Um, I love Nebula. I, I, Nebula is such a great, fascinating character in this mm. MC, this MV, MCU version. No matter what version multiverse you put her in through the MCU, it's always going to be really fascinating and interesting. She's amazing to look at. She's uh, the voice. You know, um, I always for, I always get her and the writer, comic writer, because they're Karen Gillan. Karen. It's not Karen. It's Karen. Um, Karen Gillan is such a great actress and she's so good in this role. I'm not even sure if it's her, but either it way, is her. Yeah. if it's her, yeah, it sounded like her. So I thought it was her. This is great. Um, I, I, the Blade Runner stuff is so on the nose, but I, I, it's whatever I, it, it, when you're doing these, I episodes, thought it was on the nose until we got to the third episode with all the diehard stuff, but it's, it's, it's not as on the nose as, as that, but it's pretty close. But look, I don't think it needs to be, I, I like the way that they approached it of, yeah, we're going to yeah. pull from this and we're not going to be sorry about it. Like we're going to no, go ahead and go hard and we're absolutely <laughs> going to do this. We're not pretending or trying to say we've we've sprinkled in and been slightly influenced by this thing. It's no, we are clearly influenced by this thing and that's what we want to have. But there's also 
I mean, there's a little bit with the Nova Corps, there's a little bit of Judge Dredd in there as well. Like, it's not all straight up Blade Runner. So there's some other yeah. pieces to it. But yeah, I, I thought the way that the episode, I thought the way it started, the way it threw us into that world was really, really incredible. And thematically, because yeah. Paul loves his themes, I, I liked the idea of this being a situation of Xandar's own making, that like in their effort to protect themselves, they've put themselves in this awful position where everything has descended to being in the state that we see it in through this episode. So I do that much. I I very much appreciated and just getting us into that world, right? Howard, the duck taking full advantage of all the chaos to go ahead and run a casino, a casino where we see Groot and Meek and we see Drax very briefly, not really a main part of the story like Groot or of course, Korg being a bigger, uh, more prominent character in this story. And I like that. I, I like that we get some of the Guardians characters that we would expect to see on Xandar, but also a couple of other characters like Korg and Meek, where it just totally makes sense for them to be there. And we've just wanted to see more of that team up. Granted, we got some of that stuff in Thor Love and Thunder, but to have an, another setting for that here, I really liked. And then the initial plotting, I thought was simple and straightforward enough. I didn't know like the information storage capabilities of Yandu's arrow, but you know what? I'm not going to push back on it. So if that's where she gets the schematics to uh, find out what's going on and Korg is the one who uncovers what it really is, this uh, source code for this data core or whatever for the shield generator for Xandar, I will go ahead and take that. We've only got a half hour, so I'm okay with all of that from mm-hmm. a uh, from a plot standpoint. I also, Paul, liked bringing Yon Rog into this story and Jude Law does do the voice for this. Not that I can't say that in the last, geez, now almost what, uh, five years since Captain Marvel came out, I can't say I've been really itching to see more of Yon Rog in the MCU, but I actually liked that character enough as an antagonist in Captain Marvel. And so seeing a way to have that care, finding a use for that character again, and even there's like, the, I can't even remember which, uh, which character makes a comment on it, but somebody makes a comment about Jan Rog. I think maybe it's Korg later on in the episode about what kind of villain he is. And it's almost this joke of he's trying to disguise the fact that he's a villain in the story, but also being like, not really a major villain, because in the grand scheme of things in the MCU, Jan Rog really isn't. But I thought it was great to have him be a part of it. You totally see his betrayal coming because he, but obviously Nebula did as well. But it is a, he's Kree, Ronan's Kree. They've worked together. We know that. So none of that stuff is really a surprise, but I still enjoyed him being part of the story. The prison break sequence I thought was great. Might as well say it now because it'll come up again and again. The animation throughout this season is spectacular. And so when we get Mm -hmm. sequences, I mean, obviously Nebula and the flying car, but when we see the prison break sequences, like when the lights go out, we see some of the flashing action. All of that is awesome. I think the back and forth between Nebula and Jan Rog is also really great and kind of does make me want to see Karen Gillan and Jude Law bouncing off of each other in live action somewhere in the MCU. I don't think it's going to happen, but now I actually have some interest in that because I really thought that the way they played off of one another, and as far as I don't know that they actually recorded together, they probably didn't, but you would think they were in the same room together based on, uh, I thought, the quality of their performances. So you already know that we can't trust Jan Rog. His betrayal, you see it coming a mile away. So does Nebula. It's all part of her plan, as it turns out. But I like seeing the character again. And as I said, the back and forth between the two of them, like uh, when he shushes her and she's saying, "There's you don't need to shush me. Like There's not even any gears uh, that he's listening for as he's trying to crack open this data core. And he's saying, I know, I just wanted to shush you. 
all that of that was, was uh, all of that was a lot of fun. So the episode ha- doesn't start coming apart for me yet. Like all the way through this betrayal of Yon Rog, and even the initial reveal of uh, Nova Prime being behind it all, because Nebula clocked it as soon as you know. I think most of us did as soon as uh, as soon as Nova Prime is contacting Nebula. When you have the one authority figure who is the hero's sole port, uh, sole uh, point of contact in a giant conspiracy. That one sole point of contact is the one who's running things, is at least on the side of, is betraying our hero. So all of that is just classic noir storytelling. So yeah, you can see it coming because a lot of the tropes are par for the course. But I think that's part of the fun is seeing Nebula be put through the paces of this type of story. Yeah, I, you know, all those kind of, I don't have much to really uh, add other than a couple of things and then I can move on. Um, First of all, I, I was going to wait till the end to talk about the animation, but I'll, I'll get it out now. I thought this animation has been great. I thought it was solid last year. I thought it was pretty good. This year, it, they just upped it again. And I got to tell you right now, and maybe this is controversial, but I would not be mad if they decided to do some projects on Disney Plus that were in continuity in animation. With, if they could improve... Oh, no, they totally they, should. Yeah, and I think this should be their way of like, I know animate, I know animations kind of like not everyone's cup of tea, you know, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm just going to say this right now. I think there's ways to introduce characters. I think Captain Carter was really, really fun, interesting way to put her in that cameo in multiverse of madness. I think they should Um, use these character models in this animation style since they've already developed it and you don't have to spend a lot of money with R and D for a whole new thing. They could totally do this as another way to create Marvel studio, special presentations. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think this is where you can get around maybe some of like, you know, the the aging a little bit in certain areas and like and still have projects out and still reference them through the other, um, you know, movies and whatnot. And it's still there. It's still it's still because this is this really has, I thought, been very impressive. And we'll we'll talk more about it later. But I just want to echo that. I, I would love to see movies and uh special presentations on disney plus like this to help further the plots and different characterizations introduce characters maybe to see if maybe how audiences take them i mean i'll be honest a moon knight series in animated in animation with you know i I would be mad about that to be quite honest because i feel like that would work and especially in the tones and things like that you want to do it'd be interesting so anyway um to kind of finish up on on this episode i i echo everything pretty much everything you're saying it's not it's not the the most uh efficient uh story ever you know but again for what they were doing in in that short amount of time is i thought pretty solid and pretty good what really did it what for me what made me love it it made me go god i kind of i wish we had this instead and you're gonna roll your eyes at me uh nebula with the um with the fin with the yondu fin or mm. that dude that looked like i when i saw that i'm like god damn why didn't they do that but that's effing genius because she looks incredible she like does that. yeah i was like damn dude like why are we wasting this this crap on Craglin and put this on Nebula? Way better. So anyway, I just want to throw it out. There. Maybe it's just because of that fin against blue, uh, like we see with. Uh, although Nebula's not just entirely blue like Yondu was, so it doesn't it necessarily looks, create the exact fits. same look. But no, it looks great. I don't disagree with you at all there. But I also think that Nebula having 
I think Nebula is just a stronger character, obviously, than Kraglin. No disrespect to Kraglin. I'm a fan of Kraglin in the what MCU. You mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously respect Sean Gunn's contributions also as the onset rocket in the MCU. So much love for for Sean Gunn. But I think that for Nebula just stood apart and and a lot of so much of her character arc. Wow, now I really digress. I'm gonna do this as fast as possible. So much of her character arc in the Infinity Saga was about finding and establishing her own identity. So it probably would have gotten in the way of that if she was if she was borrowing some of the iconography of uh, of a character like Yandu. So it makes sense uh, the way they did it in the Infinity Saga, but also love the way that it looked here in this episode. Before we wrap up, I, I did allude to some things that I, I didn't like as much about this episode, and it really came into it more in the end. I mean, look, the double or triple cross, as Nebula puts it, where she knew everything that was happening. She knew that, that Nova Prime was behind this, knew that yon Rog was going to betray her. I'm totally fine with Nebula being smart enough to figure all that out in advance, because, yeah, she should be, and that makes total sense, and that's also par for the course with the noir storytelling that they're going with. All of that works very well. I just think it's her execution of the of what her ultimate plan was of, of how to play all that out that just begs the question, like, so if she knows she's going to be betrayed the whole time, it feels like there's you know simpler ways to achieve this plan. But also, the ultimate solution is to allow Nova Prime to open up the shield just enough to let Ronan start to come through with the Dark Aster and then close the shield on him to destroy his ship and destroy Ronan. And it just begs the question, of like, why didn't they do this the entire time? If this was the only trick they had to do was say, oh, Ronan, we're going to go ahead. Rather than let things descend into chaos for five years, you would think at some point early on in the process, they would have thought, let's pretend to surrender and then close the shield on him. And I, I feel like there are enough characters in this world that would have been smart enough to figure that out a long time ago. So I didn't really love that solution to it. Um, that's where it, it just felt a little, I don't know, it, it just felt off to me, but that didn't get in the way of, of me being able to jo- to enjoy the episode and be entertained by it overall. And, and of course, loved seeing Nebula actually be able to confront Nova Prime. And I love that Nebula, as a character who was long manipulated by Thanos, now manipulated by Nova Prime, actually found some truth in that oath that she took as a member of the Nova Corps, and maybe a, a truth that others have forgotten or grown too cynical about. That even though she can be cynical and say, you know, this is Xandar, all we have here are problems or whatever, you know, paraphrasing what she said back in the opening of the episode. I think for Nebula to find herself through that and her own path towards, you know, her own path to the light and everything that's part of that oath for the Nova Corps, I thought was really great. So a strong opening for a season that would just get better and better. Starting, Paul, with What If Season 2, Episode 2. What if Peter Quill attacked Earth's Mightiest Heroes, written by Matthew Chauncey and directed by Brian Andrews in this version of events? Ego was able to start working with Peter slash manipulating Peter Quill six months after Peter Quill was abducted from Earth in 1988, because in this timeline, Yondu actually did deliver Peter Quill to Ego and then Peter Quill returns to Earth in New York again later on in 1988. And then, of course, there needs to be a, a team of heroes that are going to have to stop what is perceived as this alien threat. This episode, Paul, I thought was really great. I thought the plot was very, just very tight, very succinct. It just worked really, really well. 
But where this episode really came to life for me, I mean, look, creating the new team was great. Having King T'Chaka, having Hank Pym, Ant-Man, having Bill Foster as Goliath and Lawrence Fishburne. I mean, it's just crazy. I I, I don't want to become so used to this that I, I lose the sense of appreciation that we all should have for the fact that legends like Michael Douglas and Lawrence Fishburne are lending their voices to a Marvel animated series. Like, it's just crazy. It's still crazy that that's a thing, that that's a thing that happens. And I know that we don't get every live-action actor voicing their character in this, but we get most of them, and it's no kidding, pre- yeah. it is pretty incredible that this is a thing. And it does speak to the power of the MCU. It speaks to the respect and gratitude that these performers have, because, look, they're not making the same money on this that they make on the live-action movies. So for them to be willing to do this, it speaks to, again, how happy they are to be a, a part of this. And I just, I love it so much. But this uh, getting away from that point, back to the, the meat of this episode, having that new uh, Avengers team, or they're not yet called Avengers in this, of course, Thor is a part of it because Thor's a lot older than everybody. So he would still be around in 1988 and just be Thor that we know for the most part. But Paul, what really separated this episode was the initial bond between Hope Van Dyne and Peter Quill and the fact that you know them finding both of these characters at similar ages but also at a similar moment in their lives of each one having recently lost their mother and the way they connect through that and the way Hope is able to use that to empathize with Peter Quill and see that he's not the threat that the adults the the grown-ups are seeing was incredible And then we go into, there's two other emotional beats that are happening simultaneously. Michael Douglas and the conversation that he has with, as Hank Pym, and the conversation that he has with Peter Quill at Peter's mother's grave is unbelievable and just helping this kid process this grief. And Hank Pym maybe trying to do a better job with that than maybe he feels he's done with his own daughter uh, with Hope, maybe learning from some of the things that maybe he didn't do as well or feels like maybe he didn't do as well that's affected his relationship with his daughter. And then also... We have Howard Stark talking Bucky, the Winter Soldier, down from taking the shot on Peter Quill. And yeah, he has to name drop Steve Rogers to do it. But it's incredible, Paul, that this moment comes from Howard Stark. This is the same guy who, in the timeline we're familiar with, is killed by Bucky. And and he recognizes Bucky before Bucky does it as the Winter Soldier. This being the guy who helps kind of save Bucky's soul, or at least start that process in this episode of What If?, that is an emotional punch that I never saw coming when this episode started or just hearing the the basic outline or idea concept for this episode. So the whole idea of Earth's Mightiest Heroes versus Peter Quill, but not really. Eventually, of course, it's a battle against Ego when he comes to Earth. And then, uh, but the, the emotional punch, the emotional punches throughout it with these key moments, and that's not even getting into... Peter Quill, when Ego reveals to him that he killed his mother and in similar yet different fashion than what we saw in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, we get another version of Peter Quill claiming that name that his mother gave him of Star-Lord, and the way he does it here uh, is amazing. So, I mean, start to finish, there's a lot of excitement in this episode, there's great battles, great animation, but man, the, the heart in this episode that goes throughout it, the emotional heft of this episode it's just so strong. Like, I I love this episode. This one was outstanding. Yeah, man. This was, I, I, echoing everything that you said, this was, to me, we talked before the show, 
I said that the writers of this season have really, uh, I love this, understood the assignment. I love that phrase that's been popular with the kids these days. Um, but seriously, like they, the writers understood what the what in last season they did too. Just was a little more mixed. It wasn't yeah, that's at, uh, so, Paul Herman doing his best Hank Pym to connect with the kids these days. Yeah. Hey, hey, how are you doing, fellow kids? Um, yeah, so I think the kids know, actually stopped saying understood the assignment maybe a year ago, but we'll maybe keep going. I have, I don't know, but regardless, um, they did, and they understand. I think what makes this what's so fun about the multiverse, and there's a lot of there's people will complain that Marvel's the multiverse saga is is bad for a lot of different reasons, and it's or it's mixed or whatever. And I think the or why they should just abandon it completely. The problem I always say is that there's a lot of fun and a lot of great stuff you can do in the multiverse. You just have to. It has to be affect you know the right stories, right? And I think these what if stories really, in my opinion, go do a great job. This season especially, you know, I've only five episodes in, but so far, I, for the most part, these have really uh, shined. What makes the what if and the whole multiverse idea work and function and this episode by far is i think one of the best examples of why because if you can you know going back in time and just a little bit of manipulation through you know continuity you can get these all these pieces together in a very creative way and tell a very interesting story like the whole hope and peter connection i was when they when they started talking i was like damn i'm like they did it like you're crossing things together that makes sense. Like seeing Bill Foster as Goliath. Great. That was such, we never got to see that. Like, again, like we're seeing things play out how we, we never saw, but we're to see it like in a different way, but that's, it's what happened in some, you know, some aspects. So it's, it's really fun to see it all together and have a, a weird Avengers team or whatever. Right. Like there's, there's so many cool aspects of it. When Winter Soldier came on to this episode, I was like, damn, man. Like they went, they went hard. And I love the idea. I love this idea of uh regardless of regardless of who it is, this powerful being that's a kid, you know, all of a sudden like terrorizing the world. And mm. all of a sudden, all the biggest bad of heroes have to team up to stop them, you know, stop him. And it's just, there's something really fascinating about that. So just that premise alone, just on a very basic sense is interesting. When you add all the inner continuity together, it just enhances it. And that's, and that's why the continuity and the, and the MCU connected universe has always been a strength and people can argue whatever you want. Cause in the end, a good story is a good story and how it's, how it's told is always going to trump the continuity behind it. It all that is always going to be the the foremost thing that will make a successful, for the most part, anything. And the fact they were able to get you know the Captain Marvel, you know, I mean, like it's 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 so much fun. Like all that just adds to a really interesting story. And that, that's all I really can say. I love this whole makeshift Avengers team through the through the ages, and having that all make sense with that really cool ego, you know, the power the powerfulness of a. Uh, or power level of uh, of Peter Quill, Star Lord. Yeah, it, adding it, to it, the it, list it, of legends in the voicing in the episode. I mean, Kurt Russell is ego in this. Like, it's just that's uh, a crazy dude. That's crazy. And that's and I'll just I'll end on this. I just want to say that th this was probably a really again. I've only seen five episodes. This is probably the best twenty like thirty. What I'll say thirty minutes for the sake of it. Thirty minute episode 
of a start to finish merging things things together and give me a complete story. It just shows you the power of like how a short amount of time when someone can has less is more. You could, I, people argue this all the time. I'm going to say this right now. It shows you how less can be more and why maybe sometimes a two hour movie isn't always going to work when you can have a shorter length time. You can condense things. This is a great example. I think of that, how not to, Always 30 minutes, but how less can be more and you can really do a lot in a little of time. Yeah, no, it's definitely more about what you do with the time you have than how much time you have. I mean, ideally, you still need some amount of time to be able to tell a story like this, but they do uh, an outstanding job with this. When it does kind of carry forward, maybe it doesn't show up as in, in as central of a way, but I think if we're looking at a recurring theme throughout the season, redemption seems to be part of it. I mean, that's the first thing that the the Watcher is talking about. I don't think we've mentioned the watcher yet. Jeffrey Wright, good as always, as as the great as always as the watcher in this. But I, I think that in Nebula had her redemption story. We kind of see this for Peter Quill to an extent. The, I mean, he has done some bad stuff. Obviously, he's a kid being manipulated by his celestial father, so he's not really responsible for it. But nevertheless, we we know that because Thor tells us, like the other the other realms have fallen, so it's not like this stopped right here with the first attack on Earth. It's already been an ongoing problem, and that's where they become Avengers, right? Thor says they have to go off and avenge all the other things that are happening, because even though Peter Quill ultimately is able to take out Ego, it's just Ego's human kind of body form. The planet is still out there as they have a new mission to go off and, and take out that version of Ego at the end of the episode, but it's also redemption or pointing in the direction of redemption for Bucky Barnes as the Winter Soldier with the way that Howard Stark is able to reach him. So there's a lot of stuff that I just absolutely loved about this episode. And there's a lot of great humor, too. I mean, Hank Pym's summary of, of the team referring to the Winter Soldier as silent but deadly. That was funny. Um, and that maybe says a lot more about my sense of humor. But it, nevertheless, I thought that was funny. There's a lot of good stuff. Also, trying to, uh, when he's trying to feed Hope lunch or dinner or whatever that was, count, trying to count potato chips as a vegetable. That was really funny. And also do want to give credit to um, the voice actors who were not part of these characters in the live-action MCU, but Madeline McGraw, outstanding as Hope Van Dyne. Same goes for Mace Montgomery Miskell, who's Peter Quill in this, and Carrie uh, Tombazian, who is Dr. Wendy Lawson, of course, so, or a.k.a. Marvell in the MCU. So, and oh, oh, and I have to shout out uh, Atandwa Kani, the son of John Kani, who got to play, once again, play the younger version of the character of King T'Chaka that his father, John Kani, has played in the MCU. So Atandwa Kani has now played King T'Chaka in live action and animation. Just really cool to see all of these different elements coming together, but also a character like Hope Van Dyne to be put in this very unique position and the way she's able to connect with Peter Quill Again, while all the adults are talking about what to do out of fear, Hope actually lives up to her namesake in the way that she tries to connect with Peter Quill. And that's where the story starts to take a, uh, take a turn towards, really starts to take a turn towards a much more positive outcome. But just such an outstanding episode. And a few Thorisms for you, Paul, in this episode that I'm sure you enjoyed. I mean, you get a, a great four Asgard from Thor. You get a by Odin's mm -hmm. beard uh, mm -hmm. in this one. So lots of great Thor talk, uh, Thor speak in this episode as well. Just, God, finally. An, just 
outstanding storytelling, you know, from start to finish on this episode. This is a, yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, this is a, a no notes type of episode um, with just yeah. how good of a job they did with this. So now let's go ahead and move on to What If Season 2, Episode 3. What If Happy Hogan Saved Christmas? Now, Paul, when I saw this list, I mean, the Peter Quill episode was on my most anticipated list. When I just saw the list of episode <laughs> titles, the Peter Quill episode was on my list, but so was this one, and it was dropping on Christmas Eve, so a Christmas Eve episode for What If Happy Hogan Saved Christmas. I was all about this, because I want, and I wanted to love this episode, because, look, big fan of, uh, it's part of, long been known on this podcast, for those who've followed long enough, that I have my own Christmas tradition with Iron Man 3. It's what we watch now for like the 11th year in a row, as we decorate the Christmas tree, and really, as I've said before, it turns into stopping to decorate the tree while we finish the movie and then go back to decorating the tree. Big fan of, of course, Hawkeye in 2021, giving us another Marvel Christmas tradition. And then in 2022, the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. So we needed something in 2023. And we got something really great with What If Happy Hogan Saved Christmas, written by A.C. Bradley and Matthew Chauncey and directed, of course, by Brian Andrews. And I love that The Watcher, like many of us, loves the holidays and starts talking about Twas the Night Before Christmas, and then we see chaos at Avengers Tower, and we are very much circa Avengers Age of Ultron time period with the Iron Legion and all of that stuff. But we see, before we get to any of that, there's a battle happening in the tower. We get Avengers in their Christmas costumes, including Steve Rogers dressed as an elf. That was awesome. Fighting some new super-powered monster. Who is that going to be? The episode will uh, reveal it later. We will flash back to two hours before with Happy Hogan and Iron Legion with an assist from intern Darcy uh, working for College Credit to help set up the Avengers Holiday Gala. Really funny back and forth stuff here with Jon Favreau and Kat Dennings as their respective characters of, of Happy Hogan and Darcy Lewis. They are so much fun. And of course, the whole thing over nicknames of, you know, who's Sparrow versus Puffin versus Eagle versus whatever, all that stuff I, I thought was really, really funny. And then, as I said before, if episode one was unapologetically uh, Blade Runner, this is even more unapologetically, completely unabashed. We're not hiding this even remotely. This is full on diehard with Avengers Tower standing in for Nakatomi Plaza, Happy Hogan standing in for John McClane, Kat Dennings apparently standing in for Reginald Vell Johnson as she calls out, shouts out later in the episode. But Sam Rockwell, as Justin Hammer, doing his best Hans Gruber, I absolutely love this. I don't care where you stand on the most boring debate ever of whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie, but to have that be part of this uh, for this uh, for this episode, it was perfect. And it's the perfect style of a story for a character like Happy Hogan to be even more of the everyman than perhaps even John McClane could be to be working through all of this. And then, of course, becoming not everyman at all, becoming a Hulk throughout the course of this story. It was so much fun. They did a great job mixing in all the holiday puns and holiday cheer with holiday movies, including Justin Hammer trying to steal his backstory from a Christmas story. And everybody, of course, immediately figures it out with the Red Rider BB gun. Everything about this, Paul worked as well as it should. It was everything I hoped this episode would be. And, and I don't want that to be mistaken for thinking that 
it's on that same elevated emotional space of what we just had in the second episode, but not everything has to try to be yeah. there. And mm -hmm. this one just was the the fun holiday episode, and it absolutely delivered in, in everything that it was trying to do. So I, when I saw the title for this, and I, I avoid as much as I can for, as I've, I've been saying them for a long time now, uh, so be surprised. And when I was looked at, I, I did not even know the name of the episodes until I watched them. So I saw this one when I, when I came up the third episode and I, I said, I don't know. All right. It'll be whatever. I, I expected a very silly episode, which it is, but in the best way possible. And it really took me, by, took me by surprise of like Justin Hammer showing up. Um, again, this is another tightly, really fun episode that is a, that puts a lot into it and it just never lets up in the best way, you know, you can. And again, you're using lots of continuity stuff to really enhance the story. And also like, like, dude, when happy turned into a purple Hulk and that was just chef's kiss. It's I the mean, one thing. Was... It's actually my one nitpick of the episode is I don't love his creature design. Which That's, he's officially yeah. credited as Happy the Freak Hogan, and then of course gets an actual Hulk Hogan shout out from Justin Hammer uh, in the episode. But it it doesn't look bad; it looks fine. But it's, I I just yeah. thought he looked a little too. I think it was because they had him lose all the hair and everything. He just looked a little too Absorbing Man to me. Like Absorbing Man just touched something purple. It was kind of the yeah. way that it came across for me. So like I I don't hate it, but it, it didn't. It didn't jump off the screen for me either. Yeah, I, everything about like you know how he's trying. You know, I love how he's just gradually turning into it. That was that was that was a lot. That of part fun. was cool. Yeah, like the yeah. the body horror gags of it and the way that slowly escalates. That part was cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you put all that. You get to see Maria Hill in action. You get to see um, you know the Avengers in like different outfits and like and the and like the Iron Man bots. You know, Centurions, whatever they're called. Iron Legion. Um, Iron Legion. Yeah, whatever they are. Um, uh, Age of Ultron. That's a great yeah, sequence, it, it, though, when he rips them all apart as the Hulk. Oh, that, I know. Uh, yeah. And yes, yes. like his final stages of chasing down Justin Hammer when he gets to go like full Hulk and just totally rampage as uh, as, you know, happy the freak Hogan against the Iron Legion. That part was awesome. It was violently what? hilarious. You know what's unfortunate about this? Because I think there's not really much to say. For me, I love—I just loved how it all ended. It, it's it, again, it was a really fun episode. I love this episode a lot, actually. Like it really surprised me. It's kind of a bummer. I kind of wish this was, this was in continuity, because it's it's like it it really fits like everything so well. And I'm like, damn, I kind of wish this was like a legit like story. It's that good. And it almost you could almost twist it. A little, I mean, you couldn't really do it because of the Hulk aspect, I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I thought this was a really great story. I loved this again, impressing, impressive how they're able to do everything in a short amount of time, and it was a lot of fun. And it really captured like the uh, what I think a Christmas like special would be, and why honestly, I would, I will definitely rewatch this again. Oh, yeah, uh, next year. This is a perfect holiday thing. I watched Christmas with the Joker with my daughter. Uh, this year, and I was thinking, I'm like, what other Christmas episodes do I need to watch of like, you know, these things? And and this now, I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is a 100 a Christmas banger now. So this will definitely be on the rotation next year. Oh yeah, it's got to be in there. It's it's on the holiday rotation with, well, Iron Man three is in my holiday rotation. Hawkeye, Guardians holiday special, and now this for sure, absolutely going to be a part of it. And and I think there were other things, you know, in the episode that uh, that I got a kick out of. I mean. 
I love when, well, first off, from a, a broader perspective with this episode, with John Favreau actually doing the voice here as Happy Hogan, how could you not love, you know, those of us being longtime MCU fans, or even if you're, you know, a short time MCU fan who just has, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of respect for the history of this franchise and, and how this all came to be. Obviously, John Favreau, a central figure in that in front of and behind the camera directing, of course, Iron Man and Iron Man 2, and then remaining in the MCU as Happy Hogan. So being a a behind-the-camera pioneer and then still a a supporting player in front of the camera for all these years, now, because of the the Christmas miracle of What If, gets to be the central protagonist in one of these stories. I absolutely love that. And Jon Favreau did a great job with his voice performance and just the, the writing of the episode. There was some great comedy bits, like when he falls into the room where the uh, Hulk blood is being stored and he's trying not to be seen by Hammer's henchmen, be a shadow, be a loose shadow, and then all the lights come on. You can see me, we can see you. All that was great. And then, yeah, I mean, the whole, I don't know if think we, I think everybody knows the plot, but yeah, the, the whole Hulk blood of it all, trying to keep it away from Justin Hammer and that did a better job than uh, than Happy Hogan even intended. But then Sam Rockwell as Justin Hammer, like just needs to be in more MCU stuff, animation, live action, just needs to be back and needs to have a larger presence in this franchise because he is so good. And uh, as great as the animation is throughout all of these episodes, the one thing it couldn't quite pull off on the same level, it could never be as fluid as Sam Rockwell really is doing that dance that he did on stage at the Stark Expo in Iron Man 2. They try to recreate it here, and I appreciate the the attempt. It's a valiant effort, but they just can't match what Sam Rockwell can actually do with his legs. But all of this stuff was awesome, and so much of the the diehard isms that they just fully leaned into with this was a blast. All the way to the point where, when Justin Hammer uh, is actually he gets to do the Hans Gruber slow motion fall out of the building. The difference between Hammer and and Hans is that Hammer is ultimately saved by Happy Hogan here. But all of that stuff was great. I love how when the Avengers do show up, I mean it's kind of sad though. It kind of makes me annoyed with Tony that even that everybody seemed to recognize Happy Hogan except Tony. Steve immediately did and gets that I told you so over Tony. That kind of bugged me and, and I don't know why, but I feel like Tony knows Happy better than that. But Happy was also somewhat unrecognizable in the way they uh, they had that design. Doesn't match up like we normally see with Mark Ruffalo and the Hulk. But speaking of the Avengers cameos, what they were all doing when, uh, when we explained the costumes... Tony in the Santa outfit, Steve as the elf when uh, when Happy Hogan was trying to call all of them back to Avengers Tower. The best moment, though, was at the toy store with Clint Barton hanging on to the last Iron Man figure next to a shelf full of Hawkeye figures that were discounted 15%, crossed out, now 25%, and they're just not moving. And I don't know, you could just say that's a classic, you know, Hawkeye forgotten Avenger joke, and it's that. But it also feels like this being a holiday episode, a Jingle All the Way reference, because you look at the color scheme and Iron Man is very much Turbo Man and uh, Hawkeye is, is a little bit booster. All of that uh, I thought was great. Just an outstanding episode with the concept. And if you, I think a lot of people stuck around through the credits. I don't know if you did, Paul, but if you want to hear more of Darcy singing with some hilarious Marvel themed holiday lyrics, you should absolutely watch the end of the ep- or watch to the end of the episode. Not an extra scene that you see, uh, but definitely some hilarious audio to cap off 
a really mm. fun and entertaining episode that ends with holiday wishes uh, from Thor, ends with holiday wishes from The Watcher. Just a, a really great job by, uh, by everyone involved in this episode. Now, sticking with the idea of, uh, of Christmas, I'm going to echo what I said, Paul, about our next episode on uh, when I did the first impressions for Fanshow Plus. Again, available at patreon.com slash John Gerber and on Apple Podcasts. So we have the fourth episode of this, which is basically an Iron Man and Gamora-themed episode. Mostly Iron Man, more on that as we go on. But what if season two, episode four, is what if Iron Man crashed into the Grandmaster? This one written by AC Bradley and directed by Brian Andrews. This episode, again, echoing what I said on Fanshow Plus, this episode is literally and figuratively a re-gift because it was supposed to be part of episode one. It didn't get to be part of it because of some production delays. So it has been re-gifted to season two, and it is about as exciting as a re-gift. I wouldn't call it a, a throwaway re-gift or a re-gift that has to be re-gifted again. I will go ahead and hang on to it because there are enough things that are entertaining about this episode. There is a lot of outstanding action with the Mad Max slash Death Race slash Twisted Metal slash Mario Kart racing scenes that we get a couple of times in this episode, especially the last one. All of that stuff I really like. There's definitely some humorous moments in this episode, but also not all the humor totally lands for me because it just feels like it's nonstop quips. And I am somebody who is very pro quips in the MCU, but even the ones that were here, humor being subjective, just a lot of the things and a lot of the references of how many different green characters can we call Gamora. A lot of that stuff just ended up falling flat for me. It didn't land like a lot of the other jokes throughout most of the MCU and its history, including other episodes of What If before and after this one. But I also think that this episode bites off more, not even biting off more than it can chew, biting off more than it even wants to chew with the emotional arc for Gamora. Because that's really what we're uncovering here is the Gamora from the Guardians of the Multiverse in season one. Where did she come from? What was her story? We never got that. It arrived in this episode, except that it's not really her story. It's Tony's story that is supposed to uncover this huge, pivotal, emotional character arc moment for Gamora. And the way they actually achieve that, Paul, I think is is way... It's not that they... It's not that they should not have attempted this in a 30-minute episode. They could have done it, and we saw them do it for other characters and other episodes. They just weren't investing enough time in it in this episode. They weren't spending enough of the 30 minutes that they had dedicated to this emotional plot point, and it just wound up being, I thought, really underserved, <laughs> especially when we already saw Gamora have a much better version of this arc throughout her time in the MCU. Yeah, I, I echo everything you're saying. I when I was watching this episode, it was probably the first, the only one of the five we've watched that I really was just like, all right, let's, let's get this over with, you know, kind of a thing. It it wasn't bad. There were some fun moments. It was, I mean, it's it, the idea. To be honest, I think the concept of Tony crashing with the with the uh, the Grandmaster is interesting, but the execution of it just wasn't, it just, I wasn't feeling it. And they, I felt like this wasn't a great example of how you're trying to do too much into one thing. And you're, you're really trying to 
push uh, like Gamora in this episode. I was like, because I remember it starts off with uh, Gamora. It's, you know, this, right. you know, why, where does she come in? I'm like, oh, cool. It's about Gamora. And I'm like, yeah. what the hell's Gamora? Like, How did it's Gamora like, it's get really here? Weird. Here's Tony. Yeah, it, that that was weird. I'm like, oh, there she is. Okay, I see now. Um, but yeah, I I thought this was not the strongest episode. It, again, it's not like the worst thing ever, but will I ever rewatch it? Not for a long, long, long time, probably, to be honest. So if it um, was just about if it was Tony? just about Tony surviving and like overthrowing the Grandmaster on Sakaar, that part of it. That part of It'd it works, a, yeah. and and I I don't think it would have been I still don't think it would have been a great episode, but at least it would have been accomplishing most of what it seemed like it was trying to achieve. Just this is just supposed to be a crazy fun, funny action episode. I think it could have done that just fine, and and that's not to say I'm against the the idea of putting Gamora's arc into this character into this putting her character arc into this episode. You totally could have done that, and I would have been interested to see it because I wanted to see it. I wanted to know where this version of Gamora came from in the first season of What If. I want to know the answers to those questions, but if you're going to answer those questions, you have to dedicate the time to that. You, It can't just be, here, we're going to spend, occasionally we're going to check in on this for about 10 seconds while we're doing everything else. And, and like the the pivotal moment for me in this is when Gamora has confronted Tony and uh, of course, when Tony is actually talking talking about where where she's coming from, trying to avenge what he did to Thanos and him defeating Thanos and finally gets to explain to Tony who and what Thanos is. And then Tony has this moment where he's talking about what Thanos just did of trying to come in and lay waste to Tony's planet, Tony's home planet of Earth. And it kind of registers on Gamora's face for a second because we already know what Thanos did to her planet, right? We've seen it. And so the fact that she doesn't really get to speak in that moment, that we just get to see that register on her face for half a second before it's back to Tony's plot with the Grandmaster really kind of sums up where I think this episode went astray because it didn't really want to dedicate the time to getting into that. So don't even don't even point us in that direction. If you don't want to walk down that road, don't point us in that direction. And so and I think that there wasn't enough that happened there. We have a Gamora, a version of Gamora here that is very different from Guardians of the Galaxy, where when we met Gamora in 2014 in Guardians of the Galaxy, or again in another timeline with Avengers Endgame, we're meeting a version of Gamora who had largely already made up her mind that she was not going to continue serving her father and she wasn't going to help him in this pursuit of bringing balance to the universe and however he you know, planned on doing that or whatever he think that thought that ultimately meant. We had a Gamora who was already moving on from that, so to show her making to now try to give us this arc to show how she makes that decision, this one I think is ineffective because they show that she is very much on Team Thanos still at this point in her life where we're meeting her in this timeline. She is still all about it. She only introduces herself as the daughter of Thanos. She doesn't say her name until uh, the end of the episode, and she's fully engrossed in this. So I don't think what adds up to maybe less than two minutes of conversation. I didn't put a stopwatch to it, so somebody can and say it was actually three minutes and 18 seconds. I don't know, don't care. They didn't put enough time in there for me to buy that, oh, this would convince this version of Gamora at this point in time, because you didn't say it show enough to express that she already had some own, her own doubts about this. So I don't necessarily buy that she's just going to totally flip by the end of this episode because a couple of speeches from Tony that you know are made in the middle of a, a massive death race. So... 
that's where it just it fell flat for me. It was trying to add in this emotional arc, but then didn't really have any interest in serving it. But outside of that, then yeah, the other stuff, I, the other stuff I did enjoy. Like I, I do feel like it. Like I said it, it got a little too whatever with all the Korgisms and all the Tony Starkisms. Um, but I thought uh, I thought Valkyrie was really fun in this episode, and her becoming King of Sakar at the end of the episode I thought was really cool. Visually, I thought a lot of the action and the racing was all really, really fun stuff, especially the moment where Tony's armor becomes his second vehicle in the death race. Like, that was awesome. I really loved that part of the episode. And, of course, Jeff Goldblum was, you know, as entertaining as he usually is in Grandmaster again, maybe a little too Grandmastery, a little too Goldblumy uh, in some of these moments with all the repeated ooh sounds he just kept doing over and over again throughout the episode. It's like they just had all these little cuts of him making, of Jeff Goldblum making these sounds into a microphone. And they're like, we got to put him in somewhere. So animate this. And they just did over and over again. Maybe the highlight of the episode is just Rachel House being back as Topaz, who is always so much fun oh, yeah. in Thor she Ragnarok. And she, I, I think, probably steals the episode more so than anyone. Uh, she was really great, especially when they're doing the big drop off in the in the second big race and everybody's freaking out about it and her reaction to it is complete joy and excitement but it's her version of that which is her just saying we that was awesome so that was definitely a a comedic highlight of the episode for me but then when we get to the end of Gamora melting Thanos that moment could have been a lot cooler if they had properly built to it and I just don't think that they really did so that's all this episode really told us about you know where Gamora came from is after a brief chat with Tony she very quickly melted her father Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like that's not yeah. what the episode was really about, so it didn't really need to bother with going there. Yeah. I I, I really yeah, I, I echo everything. The one thing I'm gonna add is I almost didn't even think that was Jeff Goldblum because it just he it, it was almost too much to a point where I'm like, this can't like it almost was like, oh yeah, this is this is not this just can't be him because it just sounds way, way over the top. And he almost, it almost like his voice even sounded like he was yeah. trying to like do something different. If I didn't, I honestly thought it wasn't him. So the fact that you just confirmed that I'm like, yeah, that was kind of this eat. whole episode though. Cause even, yeah. And I, I'm no disrespect to Mick Winger who does the voice of Tony Stark on this, but has been doing the voice of Tony Stark on what if, as far as I know, the entire time. And so like has done a really great job, but I, I think it was just, the overall structure of the episode where everything was just so, so extra. Cause even Mick Winger has done a pretty good job of not being like extra Tony Stark. Cause I think also the writing has been good, but look, this is the same creative team. I mean, AC Bradley and Brian Andrews who've done outstanding work across this entire series. There are just some things that, that didn't land, but you know what? That's bound to happen by the way with what if, so yeah, I have a lot of criticisms of this episode, but at the same time, like you can't really get the the greatness of some of these other episodes that we've had of What If unless you're willing to take risks, unless you're willing to try and, and really go out there and go to the extremes in certain ways. And so in the same way they went to the extreme with Blade Runner, with the Nebula episode, that worked. Went to the extreme with Die Hard, with the third episode, that worked. Here they went to their own version of extremes for the purposes of this episode, and it just didn't work out quite as well. And that's fine, because look, if... If we're looking at what we've said about the three episodes that preceded this one and what I think we're both about to say for the episode that comes next, you can have one, you know, one miss or one 
let's not call it a home run, one like infield hit that doesn't look impressive but still gets the job done. You can have that occasionally when every other time up to the plate, you're clearing the fence. So I don't really mm-hmm. have, a, you know, I obviously maintain full faith in this creative team. And it's easy to do that because I know what comes next. And that is, what if season two, episode five, what if Captain Carter fought the Hydra Stomper? And this is, as the watcher makes clear to us, this is the, he doesn't normally do sequels, but this Captain Carter is one that he calls a friend. So this is, in fact, the Captain Carter, not the Captain Carter from Multiverse of Madness, thank goodness, but this is the Captain Carter from What If Season One. And on this one, she's on a mission to save uh, Steve Rogers from being the Hydra Stomper. So basically, this is Captain Carter, the Winter Soldier. Captain Carter, the Winter Stomper, however we want to call it. But Paul, I have to say, like, it's one thing to lean into influences from other media, other classic media movies that that people like. It's one thing to do that because you can get, I mean, obviously you could say there's some risk associated with that, but I think it's an even bigger risk when you bring in or, or you pull from a story or you reframe, recontextualize, however you want to say it, a story that is considered one of the MCU's, you know, Marvel masterpieces, that is considered one of the, mm-hmm. the all-time landmarks of and milestones in quality for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that being Captain America the Winter Soldier. To do Captain Carter's version of Captain America the Winter Soldier and do it in a half hour, um, Mm -hmm. you really have no business attempting that. And yet, this episode, written by A.C. Bradley and directed by Brian Andrews, so as I said, maybe that fourth episode, um, again, something that got recycled from season one anyway, Maybe that one got away from them a little bit, but they got everything right back and then some with this fifth episode that I thought was just absolutely incredible, Paul. I loved Mm -hmm. this so much. There's a a lot to, I think there's a lot to dive into here, but just in terms of the concept, it's a bold move, but it paid off Mm -hmm. in, in big, big ways to have this Captain Carter's version of a classic MCU story. I... This was one that I thought was going to be, I, I, yeah, I was like, hmm. Obviously, this is a sequel to the original episode, which I love. That, that original What If episode is fantastic. And I I love the Hydra Stomper. I, lo- I love alternate versions of characters. That's why I love the you know multiverse stuff. And I love What If, especially because they really go hard on alternate versions. And uh, and this was cool because I like the Hydra Stomper idea. I love that concept of of instead of Bucky, it's, it's, it's two people in a, in a, in a intimate relationship with each other and they are, you know, but it's Steve is still the scrawny kid from Brooklyn, but he's in the Hydra Stomper outfit. And I love the, how that they, they put, they took a spin on that whole concept again from the previous episode and said, how do we make that into our winter soldier? Cause it seems like the natural progression, right? Like, cause they've kind of, you know, Steve turned into the sidekick where there were, you know, brother, rather than obviously in first Avenger, he's captain America. So it, it felt very natural to tell that story. So I, that's where I would say, like, I definitely think it was, a, it was a risk. Don't get me wrong, but I do feel it was a natural progression if they wanted to tell that story. So it felt, I didn't feel like it was, Oh my God, they're doing Winter Soldier. But it, yeah, it makes sense because that's kind of the natural progression of these where the, these people were. I, I thought it was really well done, and the fact that they really showed you this idea of these two people being in love and what that means. And you brought in like the Red Room into it. That was really cool. Um, 
it, it, that was something I wasn't anticipating that aspect of it. I thought it would just be, you know, this wild, you know, I'm, I'm on a mission, you know, cause obviously winter soldier in the first movie is in a, a way more of a conspiracy than the red room. This made a lot more sense to me and went, Oh, okay. Like this is, you're bringing in so many different concepts. And, I, and again, you establish the relationship between black widow and captain Carter right off the bat. Again, they did some really clever things to make you connect to these two people right away by using, uh, I wouldn't say iconic moments, maybe necessarily Sean, but using key moments from the MCU to indicate. I mean, there what are they iconic moments. I mean, you see they're recreating some of the moments between Captain America and Black Widow in the Battle of New York. Sure. They have that yeah, in yeah. this. The the first shot of the original six assembling, they put that in this episode, except it's a different original six with Captain Carter standing in for Captain America and the Wasp standing in for uh, for Hawkeye, or not for Hawkeye, for the Hulk in that uh, in that sequence. So we have this different original six. And AC Bradley, who wrote the episode, I mean, she shared on uh, X, formerly Twitter, that, uh, you know, that she confirmed that was, in fact, Hope Van Dyne in, in the Wasp suit in that moment. And that also mm. just speaks to and kind of the intention there. And I think it, it comes across and it's easy enough to read on screen that that's that's the inspiration, right? That's how the world has changed because of Captain Carter is now we have an original six where there's not one woman on, there's not just one woman on the team. It's half of the characters on the team are women. And, and we see the way that Captain Carter has inspired others, including, of course, Hope Van Dyne. All of that stuff is, is great to really show not just how great of a character Captain Carter is, but if they're going to speak to, as they do later on in the episode when Melina shows up, and calls uh, Captain calls Peggy the epitome of womanhood and science, and talks about how all the Black Widows have seen her movie, which, as Natasha points out, was a musical. So we get our own Carter the <laughs> musical, as the MCU had Rogers the musical. It's just amazing to have like to show that into you can speak about that inspiration, but the characters talking amongst themselves, but to actually show that with the Wasp being part of the original six. I thought was just a really nice touch in this episode. And you're right to point out, like, there are there are definitely differences. Like, this is not full-on Captain Carter, the Winter Soldier, because, yeah, we are talking more about an external threat with the Red Room as opposed to the threat from within with S.H.I.E.L.D. in, in the U.S. and the whole Project Insight of it all. Project Insight isn't any part of this. It really is more about the Hydra Stomper and, and the Red Room and all of that. But... It, it's a nice setup for a lot of these moments. And even the way they flip some of those moments, like it's Natasha who's out for a run and Captain Carter is the one picking her up in the Corvette. Like that part is awesome because Peggy's not interested in running around in circles. And I totally get that. So I, I think that part was really cool. And then being on the ship, which they don't necessarily call the Lumerian Star, but they uncover the Hydra Stomper and we get great action. Like the animation is so good in this episode from that sequence of battling the Hydra Stomper on the ship and so many great shield throws, like all quotas well met, or if not, I would say argue, Paul, and I think you'd agree, exceeded throughout uh, Captain Carter's appearance in this episode mm -hmm. and in What If in general. Amazing job with uh, with all of that. But then when they get to the, uh, you know, the, the creepy Sokovian hideout town where they end up meeting up with the Red Room, and I know I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but when they get to that action, all of them taking out these, you know, Stepford people, robots looked amazing. But then uh, my favorite part about the action in this episode was really more of the, you know, Natasha versus her fellow widows uh, fight and Natasha versus Melina 
all that stuff was so good. And what I thought that did a, a fantastic job of doing from an animation perspective is it really did capture from an action perspective what set Captain America the Winter Soldier apart from the rest of the MCU in 2014 and kind of went on to become the calling card, especially of what the Russos would bring to the MCU with their action, even as things kind of got uh, scaled up. And then, of course, inspired other intense action sequences in the MCU. But the intensity, that visceral nature of the fight scenes in Captain America the Winter Soldier, I thought they did a, a great job of portraying that and recapturing some of that in animated form in this episode. So if you're going to use... Captain America the Winter Soldier as a jumping off point for this next version or this next uh, story for Captain Carter that they're showing to us in this episode of What If, you really have to bring it on multiple levels just like that movie did. And I feel like they do. The emotion, the emotional core is there. It's very strong, but also the action is right there along with it step for step. They combined the, you know, the Black Widow story and her story and they, and they did it in such a fluid way that it made total sense because if you don't you know reading the comics back in the day, you know that um, Bucky was a part of the red, you know, that whole, you know, the, the rush, the Russian uh, supervillain you know, contingency. I'm not sure if he was red room. I forgot what it was, but he was, you know, he was a soldier for a whole different thing. And there was a connection between, you know, black widow and, and Bucky. And in this, you know, in the MCU, we don't really have that. That's not really um, what happens. Again, it's been, I, I need to rewatch Winter Soldier. It's been a minute. Um, and uh, the thing is, what's cool is about this, it kind of feels back to like at least a little bit of a callback to that, Sean, mm -hmm. because there's a, there's a connection between uh, the Hydra Stomper and, and the Red Room, which I thought was very, it felt very natural. And that it felt like a great progression of these two characters. And that's where I think that I thought was really impressive. And again, what makes What If so special is something like this, because you're having these two characters, um, they're, they're connected and you establish them and their, their connection to the overall story is so, it's so perfectly fits. It fits perfectly that you don't really, you don't really like go, Oh, they, they, they totally like just cram these two things together, you know, willy nilly. It's a very smooth transition and it really, they play off each other so well that it all just makes sense. And I, I really want to say I, I, it's really impressive because from the get go, you, they, they established these, these two people's relationship and then it just is naturally connected and it just, it makes me, I love Bucky being a president. Like all that stuff is, is, is you know, or secretary, excuse me. Um, I yeah, love the secretary this. of state. Yeah. And I love that all their, all their connections was there. And again, the way it's paced is perfect. And, and having their two stories connected and paced together so well was again, super kudos to the writing team, man. I thought this was a really well done episode. If not, one of it's maybe one of the best what if episodes might be one of the best Marvel stories in at, at this point, maybe no, I would say top like five or 10, but it's, it's up there. It's one of the, it's a great, it's a great moment of just single, you know, moment of, of time or story for MCU uh, for me, because I thought it was, it, it incorporated all the things I like about these characters and also the elements of like what makes what if special, which is these alternate versions and seeing them like have their own like resident uh, agency within the MCU and having their own like, you know, uh, 
growing story arcs, if you will, Sean, was really great to see. And I thought this was a great example of why multiverse stories can be fun. We know they're, they, can be, they can be a masterpieces. We Trust me, we've got on and on about the Spider-Verse movies. Those are masterpieces. Um, and this is not that level, but it just, to me, it highlights why people other than Spider-Verse can make it work and make it work well when you have something like this. Yeah, I, I think this was just such an, an outstanding job of the way they did it. And yeah, I think what you're saying about the Winter Soldier in the comics, yeah, I think in the comics it's more KGB in the MCU, it's much more Hydra. Um, and then now, obviously, in this version, it's uh, this timeline, it's it's a little bit more Red Room for the Hydra Stomper. But that just makes sense to connect it in with the the Black Widow of it all and find ways to merge these stories in, in their own interesting ways that, that really adds to emotional payoffs in their own way. I mean, you mentioned... Bucky being the Secretary of State. I mean, when he's first being uh, when he's first being rushed by the strike team, when you see Brock Rumlow, I'm thinking, okay, here's where we're going, like full Cap Winter Soldier. They're going to try to take out Bucky. They're going to try to help the Hydra Stomper. But no, they don't. They actually are legitimately trying to save Bucky. But then when there's that moment that oh, speaking of action beats, like when they're in the stairwell and Captain Carter dives sh- shield first down toward the Hydra Stomper as it's flying up, that just looked uh, incredible as well as all of that whole aerial fight sequence was just really, really cool. But a great emotional payoff there is when you get to that moment where Black Widow has a shot at the Hydra Stomper and Bucky stands up in front of it and tries to reach Steve and just and even says he's doing for Steve what he knows Steve would do for him. And we know he's right. We 100% know he's right because we saw Steve do exactly the same thing throughout the Infinity Saga, really starting with Captain America the Winter Soldier, or frankly, even before that, in Captain America the First Avenger. Like, we've seen Steve stand up for Bucky over and over again, so it's so great to see Bucky in this timeline returning the favor, although he doesn't even know he's returning anything. Like, this is just him doing the right thing and trying to do right by his friend and save his friend. That was awesome. And then when we get into other emotional payoffs, like, I know it was still part of the manipulation, but I do think there's honesty in that conversation. There is some truth that Steve Rogers, even though he hasn't been cured of being the Hydra Stomper, him saying what he said to Peggy in their conversation, the gazebo, which again really brought in with the whole 1950s setup, it it looked and felt very Westview. It was very WandaVision-esque there for a second, obviously in its own context, in its own way. But in that conversation, and Steve talking about why he kept going on missions afterwards that so he could just kind of try and convince to convince himself, lie to himself that Peggy wasn't really gone. You can look at that and say it was all a manipulation, but I don't think so. I mean, yes, the manipulation was still there. There was some strategy, but that strategy was being enhanced by and was more effective because Steve was tapping into some truth in, in his feelings. Even if he didn't have them at the surface, he was pulling it from somewhere real. And so having Peggy and, and Steve have that connection in the, that moment of connection in this story as well as, of course, the the sacrifice at the end where Peggy finally gets through to him, but that just sends the message to Steve, at least doesn't send that message, that's not what she wants him to do, but ultimately inspires his decision of how he's going to stop the try and stop the Red Room, uh, which I'll have more to say about in just a moment. All of that stuff I thought worked really great, but merging this story with Black Widow and doing it in a time in a setting that completely recontextualizes the relationship between Natasha and Melina, that was the big emotional surprise I thought of the episode. Captain Carter fighting the Hydra Stomper, you can just imagine the dynamics that's going to create between Steve and Peggy because we know that we understand that relationship very very well in the MCU. But we've only really seen 
the relationship between Natasha and Melina characterized and portrayed one way in Black Widow. And here we have something that is radically different. And we see a version of Melina, like we saw something there, something redeemable in Melina and Black Widow, and it ultimately kind of comes to fruition by the end of the film. We never get there with this version of Melina. And this is a version of Melina who appears to have taken over the Red Room because in this version of events, Natasha didn't just think that Drakoff was taken out in an explosion. She actually killed him with a talks about, I mean, assuming Drakoff, I don't think they mentioned the name, but mentions killing the leader of the Red Room with a uh, a corkscrew to the carotid artery. So in this, in Drakoff, presumably that was him, in his absence, it, it appears Melina has taken over or has otherwise ascended in the ranks for uh, for the Red Room, it gets it becomes a much more well. It was already very personal, but it becomes a much more sadistic approach to Melina. the The key moment in this episode for me, or two of the key moments, is uh, you know the of course the the setup for it, which is the ultimate betrayal of Melina when Natasha is already referencing. Yeah, this is like my kind of mom, and Captain Carter saying we'll have to unpack that later. But we know because of Black Widow how Natasha really feels about that relationship which makes it hurt that much more when Natasha is fighting all of these Black Widows and Melina says to go after her knee because she injured it in a bicycle accident when she was in third grade. So before the knee is struck and we see the pain on Natasha's face from that, I think we see an even greater pain from Natasha where it's not just this woman who was my mother, who was ultimately a spy and, and manipulated me and, and helped put me into this life that I'm in or this life that I've had to fight to break away from and put all this red in my ledger. It's not only that, but that that little note there from Melina to the widows of how to go after Natasha, using information from Natasha's childhood against her, using a moment that should have been a purely motherly moment of taking care of and protecting and helping to heal the child, that that sort of moment that should have been pure between a mother and daughter is now being used and weaponized against Natasha, that is an, just an incredibly savage betrayal from Melina. And I think that informs Natasha's ultimate decision that when she sees, amongst other things, amongst the fact that Melina is unapologetically there with the Red Room and has ill intent and, and all of those things, and there's no hint at anything redeemable anywhere within that, so all of that sums up and adds to Natasha's decision as she sees Steve making that sacrifice of the Hydra Stomper flying up toward the Red Room to fire that grapple hook and attach it to Melina and send her to her death in the exploding Red Room that it sounds like Steve survives, but Melina presumably does not. I mean, what a radically different version of events that instead of Natasha reconnecting with her mother with Melina in this version of the story is ultimately making the decision that she has to defend herself, because remember, Melina was strangling her at the time, um, but also make the ultimate decision to send Melina to her death. It's just so crazy. It's such a, a trippy thing to think about as an MCU fan, because in a season that, or in a series, in a franchise that has so many redemption stories within it, and redemption being such a, a recurring theme throughout MCU storytelling, and also being very much a, a central theme in this season of What If, the redemption of Steve Rogers, the the Hydra Stomper, the redemption of Natasha and the Black Widow going through her past in the Red Room, all of that is just kept right at the center of this season. And here we have a character 
who maybe was pointed toward redemption in the live action MCU, but isn't going to get to that moment. And it just kind of speaks to how how radically different the stories can be for any of these characters, giving the time, giving whatever random sequence of events they've endured on, on their own character journey, that some of them actually get a chance and, and get those get to be there for those moments to see that path to redemption and then maybe actually take it. Some of them never get a chance to see it. Some of them maybe see it and pass on the opportunity. And that seems to be an example here with Melina where she could have seen that. She could have seen an opportunity to help stand up with, stand up for and fight alongside her daughter and maybe change and, and choose a different path. But no, she went all in uh, in using her status as Natasha's mother against Natasha in that fight and obviously leading to, uh, in, in part, Natasha's final decision by the end. All of that stuff I just thought is just so emotionally rich and fascinating at just how these characters' stories can change across these different timelines, not just what kind of crazy costume can they end up in. Mm -hmm. Now they wear a costume that's more like this character than that character. Even just who they are and their emotional journeys, their character arcs can be wildly different just depending on the circumstances within their timeline, which is not to divorce them from the responsibility of their decisions. They still have to own all of that. It is just interesting how how much variance there is for a lot of these characters uh, in the MCU. And then I'll just put a button on that by saying... Also, really cool to see Captain Carter get a stealth suit, and it looked awesome in this episode. Yeah, I mean, like, this was, you know, I thought a great example, again, of why What If works on many different levels and and why it's fun to explore these things. Because, you know, Nova Prime, not, maybe not the best example of that, of different outlooks and whatnot, but this makes more sense of, like, where one decision could alter someone's outlook and their and and their uh, place in the world at that time and, and with these superpower you know mega super villainish ways or whatever and um or if you're on the if you're in the middle somewhere right like i feel like there it's it's cool to see that how you know circumstances do dictate a lot of how people turn out you know not always but a lot of times it does and it's unfortunate but it's the way it goes and it's just a. It was a really cool example of of using that like idea of like let's do our Winter Soldier, but it, it, it's there, but it's radically different enough to be its unique, its own unique thing. And you're and again, you're using multiple layers of continuity and history to inform the themes of the story. And and, a, and not only that, all that to say, in like thirty minutes. It's just, it's incredibly impressive. This is a great, great, great uh, story in the MCU. And again, you need continuity to build this up. If you had no context of what these characters were in 30 minutes, it'd be like, that's a lot to process. But because you understand the where these characters come from, the previous continuity and the connectivity it all makes it this these 30 minutes really, really special. And I think that's where I think where people, again, that go back to the whole connected universe thing, there's problems, there's pros and cons to everything. This is definitely a pro and why it can be a special thing where you don't have to, you know, this is a solid story. If you only knew half the characters, this still works, right? If you just know half, you know, who Peggy Carter kind of is and Black Widow is, this all works. And there's a lot of stakes there. In 30 minutes. And that to me is really impressive. Yeah, I think even though we said it when we started talking about this episode and we've said it, you know, describing the other episodes, then we go and we talk so much about so many things that are happening and, and how incredible and moving and exciting and fun that they all are. 
And yeah, you it's easy to forget that, oh yeah, this really was only a 30-minute episode and they got all of this done. Um, it's just incredible when, when it works as well as it does in this episode. And so yeah, what if season two, episode five, what if Captain Car- Carter fought the Hydra Stomper? Well, what if that happened? It would be awesome uh, as it was, as we saw it play out in this episode. Just such an outstanding job. And I think really, as we're we're past just past the halfway part, uh, the halfway mark of this season, yeah, sure, uh, you know, something a, a little bit of a letdown with episode four, but look at where we were at for episodes one, uh, one, two, three, and now five. Just really outstanding work that just seemed to be getting better and better. But I would also say, you know, two really, really special episodes in the second episode, What If Peter Quill Attacked Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and the fifth episode, What If Captain Carter Fought the Hydra Stomper, with some really great fun to be had in the Nebula and Happy Hogan episode. So uh, a great first half and then some for What If Season 2. Um, I'm, of course, really loving the rest of the season because I, I actually have seen it and it's just fantastic. So we've got even I know we've got even more great episodes to talk about in our next installment of MCU Fan Show. And I can't wait for Paul to see him and hear uh, and hear his thoughts as well. But that is where we will wrap up this edition of MCU Fan Show. Be sure to check out more What If coverage on Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. Just search for MCU Fan Show where you find it on Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe via Apple Podcast subscriptions, and be able to access those Fan Show Plus episodes. Make sure you follow us at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Threads, and X, formerly Twitter. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, and so if you've already left a review, thank you so much. If you are about to, thank you very much in advance. Paul, where can they find you? Find me on X, formerly Twitter, at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Go and please subscribe to my comic book channel, YouTube channel, I should say, The Comic Binge. Uh, we do mo- we focus all on comic books. We do some fun things, like we're going to be re- reviewing the uh, Aquaman Lost Kingdom movie for comic books at the movies, where uh, recently we just re-read, uh, I, I didn't reread, I read it, uh, the uh, Lost uh, Death of a Prince storyline, which is, I think, definitely informed that movie. That was a lot of fun. And we're going to review the movie actually this next week into the na- new year. And also say goodbye to the uh, old DCEU, the, all the pro, all the, the good and the bad and the ugly that goes along with it. And uh, welcome in the new James Gunn universe, which I'm very excited about, obviously. So uh, go check us out there. And I appreciate everyone who already has. And you can follow me on Instagram threads and X, formerly Twitter, especially if you want to see Paul and I fight about Major League Baseball and competitive Ooh. balance at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.